In just four years, between 1536 and 1540, 800 religious houses in England were dissolved. The dissolution of the monasteries, ordered by Henry VIII and carried out by Thomas Cromwell and his minions, was the greatest land redistribution in England since the Norman Conquest and the largest windfall of cash to the crown in history. It was nothing less than the wholesale destruction of monasticism. I'm Suzanne Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, we are very much talking about the Tudors. Writer and historian Matthew Lyons joins me to discuss the dissolution of the monasteries and its unintended consequences on pregnant women, the poor, and the libraries of England. Matthew is a wonderful writer and historian. His books include Impossible Journeys, which is a collection of travellers' tales about journeys to places that didn't exist, and The Favourite, which explores the love affair between Walter Raleigh, or Rayleigh, or Raleigh, and Elizabeth I. And he is working on a book about the dissolution of the monasteries, which I'm very excited about and which we're talking about today. And if my recommendation is not sufficient, Impossible Journeys is a gorgeous folio book, which you must add to your collection now. And obviously being printed by folio is the imprimatur itself of quality. It's very exciting to talk about the dissolution of the monasteries because... I think it's arguably the most significant change that any English or British monarch has made. If you think about the number of people put out of those monasteries, every abbey and convent and priory and monastery nunnery closed, all the lands moving into the king's possession. We can't overestimate it, can we? Yes, absolutely. The amount of money involved is phenomenal. In 1535, Cromwell sent round agents to value the estates of the church of the monasteries. Cromwell was very fond of making lists of things. And there's a great phrase about getting the value of every jewel in every monastery in the country. That's essentially what his agents did. And the value of the monastic lands were something like twice the amount of the royal estate revenue of the period. So you can see the immediate attraction for Henry and for Cromwell just from a financial point of view, aside from the politics and aside from any theological issues they may have had with the Catholic Church. I really want to know what you think about the balance of finance versus theology. But just to fill us in, obviously we're talking about Henry VIII and we're talking about Thomas Cromwell because I know it's easy to confuse our Cromwells. And this is after the break with Rome, which we could sort of pin at about 1534. But I suppose we should perhaps even backtrack further and talk about what monasteries were and what they did and what their function was? Yeah, essentially there's two kinds of monastic house in England in the period. There are monasteries and there are friaries. Um, the central difference between those two is monks and nuns in the monasteries lived in communities that were in principle in seclusion, whereas the friaries were a 13th century innovation and they were teaching and preaching orders. So they lived in communities and they're a big part of the educational reform in the medieval period. And also another key difference is that whereas monasteries were allowed to keep some kind of possessions... And in fact, actually, I mean, the whole business model, as it were, is land ownership. And friars were very proud about 
about their poverty. They raise their money from begging or from cash donations from the wealthy. And they sort of look down on the monastic order as being second class and not really sincere in their vows. Not sufficiently austere to really count. If you become a monk or a nun, you're devoting yourself to God, to prayer. You undertake to obey an austere set of spiritual practices aimed at the falling away of bodily imperatives and devoting yourself and your soul to the worship of God. Part of the daily cycle of prayers was about intercession on behalf of the dead, primarily to saints, to speed your loved one's way through purgatory. So in some ways they are a fundamental part of a belief system, a salvation theology that involves purgatory. If you think after death you're going to go to this place between heaven and hell, you're going to be there for tens of thousands of years unless people pray you through it more quickly, then you need to have monks to do that for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I was thinking about this the other day. In a way, we're more familiar with the idea of, say, tombs of the pharaohs equipped with goods to look after them in the afterlife. Medieval Catholicism has an aspect of that in that you're looking after the lives of the dead once they've moved on beyond the mortal realm. The monastery is specialised in salvation and the soul. Whilst for the individual monk or nun, it was a personal act of devotion and sacrifice and purification. It also had a wider spiritual function for the society. They form a very key part of how society thought it ought to function. And did they have a sort of practical and social role as well in those societies? Yeah. Obviously they were bound to give hospitality to anyone that needed support. They looked after the poor, both through arms, through giving away food and sometimes money, but also through giving people places to stay. I sometimes say they're kind of like the equivalent of the National Health Service, which is true to the extent that there was health provision in medieval England. It was provided by the monks, in particular by the Augustinian order, who had a more society-facing role than, say, the Benedictines or the Cistercians. The other thing that they're also very bound up in is learning, because throughout the medieval period, monasteries were the repositories of all learning in the West, really, both as preservers and as promulgators through the scriptoria where they copied manuscripts and circulated all kinds of manuscripts scientific religious by the time we're talking there are a lot more secular education institutions being established but still education was a key role both for young people going into the monasteries but also noble families and very often families of poor people in the community we do have this idea as you say about them being in isolation and in theory monks are secluded but the picture you're painting is very much one of being a fundamentally important part of the community at a level of petition and prayer of a theological level but also in terms of social educational cultural value and even just if one thinks about geography, the fact that their lands are about a fifth of England or something. I mean, they would have been everywhere. You would have been aware all the time about monasteries and their role in society, wouldn't you? There were 800 plus monasteries. A lot of monasteries had smaller cells where one or two monks would go off to contemplate in even more isolation. And a lot of them had granges, which managed the land. There's kind of like a contradiction right at the heart of monasticism, which is to make them work financially. They needed revenue from land. Land needs management. So the idea of isolation is always compromised by the fact that you have to deal with the outside world, both in terms of managing revenues, but in terms of farming, the produce from farming, the revenues from farming, the rent. It's like a fundamental contradiction. I mean, in some ways that goes to the heart of the problem, certainly when you get to late medieval period, the early modern period, and critiques of monastic practice from people like Erasmus is that people could see the abbots and so on out in the community and they were wealthy people 
quite often the abbots had essentially private land holdings and they behaved and carried themselves with all the pertinences of noblemen, which the noblemen resented, because who are these people? In some ways, there's a kind of inevitability about the kind of conflict that the dissolution represents, because contradictions right there in everything monasteries do. Before we talk about the dissolution, I just want to ask about nuns, basically. When we talk about dissolution in the monasteries, the dominant one is monastery, we're thinking about men. I don't know if you know this, but what scale do we have of women involved in this as well? So, roughly speaking, there were 550 monasteries for men, 150 nunneries. So nunneries were very widespread. One of the things that Cromwell's agents were very keen to do was to rip out all the superstitions and the adoration of relics. If you go through the list, a large proportion of those are essentially the Girdle of the Virgin Mary, for instance, which there are, there are multiple instances, were to aid and succour women in labour. Perhaps half of the relics were for the support of women. The solution is very kind of male. The smaller monasteries were dissolved first. That hit nunneries much more than it did the monasteries for men. And there were problems when they tried to relocate the women from the smaller monasteries because there weren't enough larger nunneries for the women to find position in. That's a really fascinating take on the dissolution, this idea of its gendered aspect, both for the nuns themselves, but also that idea that actually much of the function of monasteries is to aid women. So let's talk about what's happening in the dissolution then. There have been some small dissolutions before, haven't there? Yeah, it certainly wasn't like an uncommon procedure. So Henry V and Henry VI both dissolved a number of monasteries. Henry VIII's grandmother did it. Bishop Fisher, who actually was executed by Henry for refusing the oath of supremacy, he had done it. Cardinal Wolsey had dissolved 29 or 30 monasteries in the late 1520s. But I think what's different about those dissolutions is that the revenues from the dissolved monasteries went to found other institutions principally educational institutions. So there's quite a number of colleges at Oxford and Cambridge that were founded on the revenues from dissolved institutions. So was that the intention of the previous dissolutions? Yeah, so like Henry VI founding King's College, to fund that, he dissolved a number of monasteries and the revenues from the land would go to support the establishment and the maintenance of the college. Henry VI founded Eton off the back of dissolved monastic houses. So when we get to the 1530s, that isn't what's going on, and we've got something on a radically different scale. Where do we start? Do we start with why it happened? As many things in life, there are lots of different things feeding into it. And lots of arguments really going on, really from the late 1520s, about what needed to be done with the monasteries, whether anything needed to be done with them. And there are various reasons as to why something needed to be done, quote unquote. So Wolsey, before his fall, had planned to dissolve houses with less than 12 monks in them both to help support the larger houses and essentially restructure the church. He wanted to create new bishoprics and so on. The idea of dissolution in itself, it was in the air, but it didn't have to become the thing that it became. There's various policy proposals from the early 1530s where people are talking about dissolving the monasteries, or some of the monasteries, for instance, to fund a standing army for Henry and to promote education. So there's lots of kind of debate going on about whether something should be done with them and if so, what. So if it's the smaller houses that seem to be the ones that are not holding up their end theologically, does that explain why that's the first point of call? So in 1536, the first monasteries to be dissolved are the smaller ones, aren't they? That suggests a theological motivation. 
Well, 12 was thought to be the minimum number of monks or nuns needed to perform the daily Catholic offices. So there's that, and certainly there's a good number of monasteries that had fewer than that number in the country. I think in 1535 into 1536, Cromwell sent agents round to visit all the monasteries and to, amongst other things, make an audit of their behaviour, out of which came information that fed into the Suppression Act in the spring of 1536. Opinion differs as the quality of the research that they did. Certainly they went looking for sexual immorality in particular, and there's good evidence that they, if not exactly faked the evidence that they produced, they certainly exaggerated and distorted it. So it's part fact-finding, part propaganda exercise. But I think pressing the smaller houses didn't necessarily mean that you wanted to suppress all the houses whilst it seems like it's an inevitable stepping stone to us in hindsight, 1536, I don't think that was necessarily the conclusion other people would have drawn. And actually the preamble to the Suppression Act 1536 goes out of its way to talk about how great the large houses are and how morally sound and spiritual they are. Let's talk about this document, though, because I don't really want us to move away from the gossipy list of sins and colourful offences that they credit or perhaps debit the monasteries with without having looking at that a bit more because it is quite extraordinary so Cromwell sends men all over the country is that right 1535 yeah so starting in late July 1535 there's quite a small number of agents go around probably like four key ones but there's others doing different circuits and they didn't quite visit all the monasteries but they visited the vast majority of them and they're looking after a number of things. But certainly, as the process went on, from about September 1535, they start looking very hard at sexual immorality. They count masturbation as sodomy. So when the information is presented to Parliament to support the Suppression Act, or the MPs are going, what?! I had no idea it was so widespread these places have to go. But actually, there's a very blatant slate of hand going on there by men on Cromwell's behalf. Another thing that they do is they seem to have presented lifetime misdemeanours as things going on presently. There's a case of a nun in Yorkshire who's had a child. She was 70. So clearly, this is something that happened a very long time ago and more than likely before she took her vows. But these kinds of things are all wrapped together and presented as, oh my God, these are sinks of depravity. That's really interesting because I noticed that quite a lot of them are about nuns charged with incontinence, i.e. they had sexual intercourse with some of the opposite sex and they've given birth. But actually, of course, people could become nuns later in life. But wait a second, we've got to get back to the sodomy because even masturbation, it seems to me quite a difficult thing for anyone else to notice and chart. I mean, one thinks about how evidence is compiled. That surely indicates that these things are being made up unless they were you know, particularly sneaky, these spies. Well, there's two parts to that. One is that the idea of a visitation from the superiors of the church was a common practice for monasteries, and they were used to having the bishop or representative of the bishop coming to the monastery to see that they were in good order, and monks and abbots and so on would, may not actually be a confession, but it's a kind of, you know, well, these are my sins, and the visitor would then issue penance or talk to the abbot about problems within the monastery and give them a list of injunctions of how to bring things back up to standard. So... I think on one level you have monks treating Cromwell's visitors in the same way as a kind of confession, with the expectation that they're talking about sins to expiate in a spiritual context rather than, well, they're going to use this information against me kind of way. So there's that going on. 
I hadn't realised that, that actually they are treating these commissioners, these visitors, as people to whom they confess, as you say, not having any idea that this is going to be used against them. Yeah, there certainly seems to be that dynamic going on. The other thing, certainly in a lot of the monasteries, Cromwell's men would have one-to-one with each of the monastics. Leighton writes from Leicester, I think, to Cromwell, basically saying, well, I'm going to start by accusing them of adultery and buggery and then work down and see what kind of confession I can get out of them. You also have the force of the state, in a sense, pressurising confession. This is in the context of the Oath of Supremacy, which a number of monks at Charterhouse had died for, and that part of the remit of Cromwell's men was to ensure that the abbot, prior or whatever, was enforcing that and getting support for it. So there's a very strong political context to the visitation as well. So there's kind of coercion. The dynamic is quite an interesting one from both sides. Yes, and I suppose if you know that certain monks had died because they wouldn't swear the oath of supremacy, that's going to put the pressure on. So you've got that on the one half, and on the other half, this sense that actually it's their very pursuit of holiness that in the end convicts them of being unholy. Yeah, amongst many other things, it's such a gross violation of trust. It's quite a thing. That's extraordinary. Well, in a moment, Matthew, I want to find out what was motivating Thomas Cromwell to dig up all this dirt about the monasteries. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected... And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm breathless, I'm panting, because I'm hiking up the Inca Trail in the footsteps of the intrepid explorer, Hiram Bingham. Why? Well, because Dan Snow's history here is going to Machu Picchu. Join me in Peru for an epic mini-series unravelling the mysteries of the Inca, one of the greatest empires that's ever existed. We trace their meteoric rise to power, their domination of mountain, desert, and jungle, their elaborate ritual and practices, including human sacrifices, and their demise at the hands of the Spanish conquistadors. Out now on Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and I'm talking about the dissolution of the monasteries with Matthew Lyons. Matthew, we can never know why people did the things that they did in the past, but on your best estimate, why did Thomas Cromwell encourage his agents to find this dirt about the monasteries? Was it just money? I think money is the go-to answer because there was so much money, although Henry blew it, really. Nevertheless, for a few years, it transformed finances of the crown. I think also there's issues around power and also, from Henry's point of view, fear, I think, because obviously the oath of supremacy is something that's very important to him for all sorts of reasons, 1534, 1535. I mean, that's why they went to such efforts to get Thomas More and Bishop Fisher to agree, and it's why a number of Carthusians in London did ultimately die because they refused to take it. But Cromwell personally visited the Carthusians to try and persuade them. And it was very important to have that buy-in from institutions that, A, have a lot of status, collectively have a lot of impact in terms of the community. Henry wasn't wrong, necessarily, to be concerned about opposition from the monastic orders. One of the issues is also the orders who seemed to oppose Henry in his activities were the ones that everyone regarded as the most morally upright. So that, I think, was a concern for Henry. I'm sort of digging into a much bigger question. For those who haven't spent their lives reading about the 1530s, there is a debate, would be a mild word for it, between historians about those who feel that Henry VIII is driving things through when it comes to the Reformation and those who feel that Thomas Cromwell was the real originator of the Reformation. Cromwell's men are obviously those who are doing this work, but do you see it originating as an idea from Henry that Cromwell is carrying out? Or do you feel Cromwell has more of a role in initiating this? The Valor Ecclesiasticus and the visitations, we can see that they lead to the dissolution. But in a sense, Henry had just taken control of the church. So he had this huge part of society to govern and they needed processes and those processes if you take the financial and administrative, say, those could be perfectly normal things to do, having taken charge of the monasteries. And I think you can certainly see Cromwell's hand in those administrative processes. Clearly, there is a theological drive from Cromwell. But you can also certainly see, like, Henry's hand in the mix through, like, the early stages of the visitation, when Cromwell's men have just started. Richard Layton gets called back to court. Cromwell calls him back to court because Henry wants to formalise the injunctions against the monasteries. He's ensured that they're being strict enough with them. And later on, when they start looking more closely at sexual impropriety, that follows on from the meeting with Cromwell the King, Cromwell's agents at Winchester. Henry's fingerprints are all over it, even if he isn't necessarily driving towards the goal of dissolution. In terms of the timing, we've got the Act for the Dissolution of the Lesser Monasteries passed in the spring of 1536, and that affects how many monasteries that year? Something like 400 monasteries. But actually, one of the things that's built into the Act is the possibility of exemption. So quite a lot of the smaller monasteries, they'd had to pay for the privilege, but they were essentially exempted from the Act. So I think only 280 or so were actually dissolved out of the 400 odd that might have been. Okay, so during the course of 1536, we've got that dissolution happening. Perhaps this is maybe a time to define what we mean by dissolution. So what exactly happens? More of Cromwell's men go and visit the monastic house, ask the abbots to surrender the house and its properties to the crown. And the surrender is signed, or in a few cases it wasn't signed and they ended up getting executed. But that's essentially the process. So the legal entity of the monastery is dissolved. I mean, arguably, the land ought to have gone back to the founders 
often it was the king, but like half of the cases, at the least, it wasn't the king. It would be Duke of Norfolk's predecessors or whoever. So that's what happens. And what happens to the monks or the nuns? There's various stages to that. Part of the thing that Cromwell's men did when they went through the visitation was to essentially expel any monks or nuns, sometimes under 20, sometimes under 22, sometimes under 24. It seemed to be quite a lot of flexibility. But essentially they kicked 1,600 monastics out of the monasteries even before you get to the suppression. Probably like nine, nine half thousand monks and nuns and so on in the country before the dissolution. So those people have got to find a way in life, no helping hand whatsoever. Post-suppression, there are pensions set up so particularly for the abbots and the senior people within the houses, some of them got very good pensions indeed. I think it's fair to say that the more client you were, the better your outlook was going to be. And the more junior monks and nuns got much smaller pensions. There's very clearly a lot of poverty coming out of it. As the process goes on, you can see abbots and monks basically liquidating their assets and selling off 99-year leases for ready cash, selling the gold and the jewels to the local goldsmith and so on, and basically raising cash to look after themselves. There's a really poignant thing about a monastery up in Yorkshire where a monk tries to sell his cell door for like two pence on the basis that he'd been given the cell and it was his to sell. There's a lot of poverty. You do find here and there groups of monks and nuns, maybe particularly nuns, trying to maintain some kind of house, some kind of religious ritual in a kind of secular world. Monasticism wasn't outlawed per se, it was just that the mechanisms that went to support it were no longer feasible. So when Mary restores, briefly, monasticism in England, you get small communities of monks and nuns coming out of the work and going back into formerly roles which they've privately maintained in the intervening few years. So thinking about this progress of the Act then, and I think it's really important that we don't think about it with hindsight, but we go along through 1536, the smaller monasteries are being dissolved, and then that prompts this big rebellion against many things, but one of the key things they mention is the dissolution of the monasteries, and this is the Pilgrimage of Grace. And how important do you think that is in making it into what it becomes, this kind of wholesale destruction of monasticism in practice, if not in theory? Again, there isn't like a smoking gun, but essentially the pilgrimage of grace is almost the entirety of the North rising against Cromwell and Cranmer and others of Henry's agents. And it's very explicitly against the dissolution of the monasteries. There were quite a number of houses that the monks went back to on the back of the pilgrimage of grace, which Henry was incandescent about. Because as we know, he didn't really like people going against his divine right, not that he would have used that phrase. So the restoration of the abbeys and their continued survival was one of the key aims of the pilgrimage. And Ask, the spokesman, spoke very eloquently about the role of monasteries in the community that we were talking about earlier, about the support for the poor and their role in maintaining spiritual life in the north and very remote places. It was a serious uprising. There were perhaps 40,000 men in the field, as it were, proposing Henry. And you can kind of see the scale of it in that basically back end of 1536, the king's men in the field, Norfolk and Suffolk, come to a truce with the leaders of pilgrimage. I mean, Ask gets safe passage to come to the court over Christmas, over Twelfth Night, which is quite peculiar. And then the government moves against them in the new year and there's wholesale executions and really brutal suppression. Yes, it's an essential part of the story, isn't it? And we're racing through it, I'm aware. But I guess I want to get on to the dissolution of the bigger monasteries, the ones that had been praised a year earlier for being so holy and are now themselves 
under attack. And that starts to happen from early 1537? It's kind of the back end of 1537. What's interesting about it is that there isn't any legal process behind it. Essentially, again, you have Cromwell's men going to the houses one by one and essentially bullying them into dissolving themselves. So no successive act has been passed. We've got the one in 1536, but we don't have another one saying, "Okay, go and attack the bigger monasteries. No, they're all essentially persuaded to surrender and then the process was ratified retrospectively in an act of 1539. Not all of them had been dissolved by then, but the bulk of them had gone. So it's interesting to wonder whether that's a change of tack because of the pilgrimage of grace, whether they're trying to do it to minimise the potential for national opposition. I mean, I think there certainly would have been opposition in Parliament to the wholesale dissolution of the great houses. There is an argument that this is how Cromwell wanted to act all along and that the Suppression Act actually was something that he was bounced into by Rich and another advisor of Henry's called Thomas Audley and that Cromwell always wanted to do it stealthily, but Rich in particular wanted to put it into law, and Henry agreed with them, and that Cromwell was very unhappy about that. So maybe this is how Cromwell always wanted to do it, we don't know. It seems extraordinary though, doesn't it, that of all of these houses, you've got Cromwell's men going along and saying, you know, would you give up your property to the king, or you really should give up your property to the king, or whatever persuasive words he uses, and so few of them say no. Well, I think for a lot of them, they saw the writing on the wall, for one thing. I think they saw it as something that was inevitable. It's something that gains momentum, doesn't it? You have the suppression of the smaller houses, you have the execution for treason of some of the heads of the houses from the Northern Rebellion. I think you can kind of see them thinking, well, we need to think of ourselves and our futures, and so you kind of get the best deal on the pension that you can. I mean, a number of abbots, the abbot of Glastonbury, the abbot of Reading, the abbot of Colchester, I mean, they all essentially resisted and died for it. Yes, the story of Richard Whiting, the abbot of Glastonbury, who was executed on Glastonbury Tor, so overlooking his abbey, a traitor's death, so a pretty horrific death. I've always found that very moving. A lot of those stories are. I think that was what happened if you'd resisted surrender. That's one of the examples of Cromwell's to-do list, I happen to know. Doesn't it say item, it's a sort of bullet point in Tudorese, item, the abbot of Glastonbury to be tried and executed? Yeah, it's almost as if he knew what the result of the trial would be, you know. it's uh... Who would have thought? <laughs> Extra legal practice in Tudor England. I think, let's say, Cromwell's agents had some pretty persuasive arguments. The Treason Act 34, speaking against the supremacy and the succession, was treason. That's pretty heavy cudgel with which to beat people into agreement. You mentioned that you had a caveat about when it was decided that all monasteries were going to be dissolved. What was that? On paper, it looks as if the decision was taken some point after the Pilgrimage of Grace, sometime 1537, to dissolve all the big houses. But actually, Henry founds two houses in the middle of 1537, dedicated to say prayers for himself and for Jane Seymour, who at that point was still alive. So it's very hard to put that into a picture of everything else that was going on. It just doesn't really make any sense. It's just a niggle that you think, well, might there have been another way forward? It is, however, consistent with Henry that he is inconsistent. Yeah, absolutely. Entirely speculative. I wonder if it was wrapped up with Jane Seymour and whether if she had lived, there would have been a different way forward. Who knows? They were set up to say prayers for him and her as she died three or four months later. Yes, her effect on Henry might have been quite different. But let's think about the consequences. So what consequences did the dissolution have for devotional life and social welfare and education, all those things we were talking about earlier? Essentially, healthcare, social care disappeared. 
more or less overnight. And actually, I mean, I think you can say that this is a fairly classic bit of mismanagement. The Act of Suppression 1536 dissolved all houses under £200. They forgot to exempt the hospitals from that. So essentially, a tonne of hospitals shut across 1536-1537 and there were probably, I don't know, 500-600 plus hospitals, almshouses, some of them 150-200 beds, there were big places. And so you have, for instance, the Mayor of London, Gresham, writing to Henry and saying, you have to do something about this, there are dying, ill people in the streets everywhere, because the three largest London hospitals, I think, had closed. Really, that role doesn't get replaced for decades and decades and Tudor England had a big problem with vagabonds, masterless men a lot of those people would have been soaked up by the monastic houses, they would have been looked after and well often found work amongst other things, the houses were big employers in local communities Yes, so the extent to which the dissolution of the monasteries is creating many of the problems that we have later in the 16th century is perhaps much greater than I think I had realised certainly these concerns about homelessness, vagrants, vagabonds are really profound, aren't they, and cause a lot of insecurity later in the century. What else are the effects? In terms of distribution of wealth and that kind of thing, basically rich people got richer, is what happened. Arguably, Henry should have kept a lot of the land and made the crown revenue safer, but it, almost all of it was sold to already rich, mostly local families. So for a whole strata of society, it was fantastic. They got new property, they got new land, a huge influx of wealth for them. Obviously, they had to pay for it, they had to buy it. Once that's happened, it's a huge transfer of wealth, as you said, the largest since the Norman Conquest. And that has lots of implications further down the line in terms of how later Tudor England functions. I mean, in terms of other things, you know, education, monasteries didn't have the central role that they had perhaps two, three hundred years earlier, but they're still very heavily involved in educating particularly poor children. I mean, that just disappears, really. Eventually, things pick up in subsequent decades, but no thought, I think it's fair to say, was really significantly given to the social impacts of the dissolution. And as you said earlier, the effects of the dissolution, we can still see them, these great hulking carcasses of monasteries littered across the landscape the effect architecturally and culturally and in terms of learning must have been huge as well yeah i mean vast destruction ask the leader of pilgrimage of grace he talks about the monasteries of the great beauties of the land and you can absolutely see what he means even in terms of what's left but yeah huge destruction of english history some of these houses existed before England existed, you know, they're back from the 7th century. Huge legacies of history, both in terms of physical structures and monuments and so on, but perhaps more importantly in terms of their libraries. I mean, the libraries were essentially dispersed, some like 6,000 books extant from medieval monastic libraries in England, and that's the equivalent of like three libraries of the period compared to the hundreds that there were. John Leland, an antiquarian, was writing to Cromwell complaining saying you have to do something about this in July 1536. So they got dispersed abroad. A lot of religious texts simply got repurposed as signing paper for the signings of other books. Huge amounts of stuff just disappeared. Matthew, that hurts my heart to think about how many books were lost, what riches we would have as historians if they had survived. Absolutely, yeah. It's very hard to quantify in terms of art. You go along to the V&A and look at things like the alabaster statues, Nottinghamshire alabaster, little items, huge amounts of things just gone. It's just hard to know what there was. I'm aware I didn't express quite so much concern for all the people made poor or the dying people in the streets. I care about them as well. But as historians, 
we know what we know because of what survives, obviously not just in documentary form, although largely that. What sources do you use to access this? You mentioned some letters, you mentioned the reports from the commission that went around to look at places. What other things do we have to know about this? Cromwell, whatever his faults, was a pretty first-class administrator. We have some of the what we call comperta that his men compiled in 1535-1536. We have the Valor Ecclesiasticus with the revenues. We have lots of letters from Cromwell's men, letters from commissioners involved in the suppression. A lot of the surrender documents still exist. Obviously, the monsters themselves were big on documentary evidence. Whilst obviously much of it has been lost, there's letters there. We've talked about when was it decided, whose decision was it. The big gap is what Cromwell was writing. His papers seem to have been destroyed when he fell from grace in 1540. And so we have all the letters coming in and we can only really sense what Cromwell is telling people by people responding to him, be that his agents, be that the heads of monasteries, be that monks in monasteries complaining about their abbot, complaining about their brethren. There's a whole range of stuff coming in. What goes out, you have to guess. It's fascinating and frustrating at the same time. It's like that sort of archaeology they do where they can tell that there was a hole there. (laughs) But obviously there's not a hole, but they can somehow tell that. We're operating to try and figure out what Cromwell said by the evidence that remains from responses or whatever. When I started out by talking about the scale, do you have any thoughts on exactly what this means, this scale of this phrase that we trip off our tongues, the dissolution of the monasteries? It's very hard to actually quantify because it is so big. In any kind of measure you want to quantify it in terms of money, in terms of art, in terms of politics, in terms of faith, it's such a huge watershed in our history. We talk a lot about how Tudors reimagine themselves as a royal family and as a kind of a starting point, if you like, in the English story. You know, one of the reasons it feels like that is that all this other stuff was just rubbed out. The legacy of centuries and centuries of English history and pre-English history in space of four or five years. On one level, it's an extraordinary achievement by Cromwell primarily, but I guess also on Henry's part, to be so destructive and to erase such a large part of English life, English history, with relatively little consequence, really. Obviously, pilgrimage of grace, a major thing. But after that, as you're saying, people seem to acquiesce. Personally, I think it's a great tragedy. On one level, it's also a great achievement. And that's as you say, probably one reason why we remember the Tudors quite so much, because they set up the story to start with themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been really fascinating, Matthew. Thank you so much for your time, because I've learned so much. There's been so many insights and so much to think about. Thank you for making time to do this. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. 
In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.